Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Discovery Debrief, your latest jaunt into discussing the latest trek into the final frontier, Star Trek Discovery. I'm co-host Chris Clow, and I'm joined by two other members of our regular panel of bold Trek franchise explorers, including Rachel Clow. Oh, hello. Hello. And Cicero Holmes. Tarsus 4. Tarsus (laughs) 4. Remember the 4,000. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Zachy isn't able to join us on this one only because he hasn't read the book that we're going to be talking about in this issue, but you'll, of course, be hearing from him again on our next episode, which should be exciting, I think. Uh, I've got an iron in the fire that I'm hoping is definitely going to pan out, particularly for people who are listening to this episode. So uh, keep your eyes on the social media channels for the show. Uh, So we have talked for a while over the past couple of months about what we're going to be be doing tonight for the subject of this episode. And now we're making good on that chatter by focusing in on Star Trek Discovery Drastic Measures, the second tie-in novel to the Discovery TV show by author Dayton Ward. And if you remember back in episode nine of Discovery Debrief, Rachel and I went solo to discuss the first tie-in novel by David Mack, which was called Desperate Hours. Uh, This new book takes a pretty different approach to its material, though, so it should make for an interesting discussion. It it plays with something totally different in the the timeline of these characters and in a totally different spot, which made for a good reading experience, and hopefully it'll make for a good listening experience, too. Uh, First things first, though, as always, let's check in with what our panel's been up to. How are you guys doing? What's the uh, time and trek been like since we last recorded? Rachel, you have been rewatching Deep Space Nine, and now you're starting to get into some pretty exciting territory, right? Yeah, I'm in the sixth season, oh, wow. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is great. Yeah, I I haven't gotten here as much, so it's like familiar. Yet I can't quite remember what happens. That's good. And that's, it is fantastic, Chris. I forgot. Really? It's, see, this is the part you you sit there stone faced, but inside you're apparently going, yeah. So, what what is it that 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 gets to you so much about this season specifically? Um. Well, Goldicott has entered his final form as <laughs> batshit crazy Goldicott. Yeah. Which is great. Um. And I just, like, there's so many things, like, there's an episode in, like, late fifth season where, like, uh, Garrett kills some people, (laughs) and I'm like, holy, like, holy crap, like, Garrett just killed some people, and I'm like, I bet they never even reference this again, but they do, (laughs) like, the next time, because when he kills the people, he holds Nog hostage, Mm -hmm. and so the next time he's alone with Nog, Nog is like, I'm not turning my back on you, (laughs) I'm like, yeah, that's great, and just... I, I the whole interlude where the the Dominion is um, occupying Deep Space Nine is great, and mm-hmm. Kira sort of coming to terms with the fact that she's become a collaborator, and then yeah, um, it's hard to watch, kind of. Yeah, yeah, that was, but even the one offs are good. Like I watched one last night with um, Mourn. Yeah, uh, who mourns for Mourn. Mourn's death. Yeah. And uh, it was just a, a really fun little episode. Yeah, that's a good one. And good I, Quark-isode. Yeah. All, well, always. I mean, it's yeah. 
if you can say anything about Quark, it's that he's entertaining. And that also has that, well, that point when they're defending the station from the Dominion who are actually coming to occupy it. Because is that the, that's the season five finale, I believe. Yeah. Has my favorite Garrick tete-a-tete with Odo, where he, uh, he basically says to him, well, Odo illustrates to him that uh, you would shoot a man in the back. And Garrick says, well, it's the safest way. Isn't it? <laughs> and it's like, it's such a pure Garrick line. And he says, so you're sorry that you didn't shoot Dukat. And Garrick just like wistfully, but kind of mournfully says, by the time this is over, we're all going to be sad. I didn't shoot Dukat. Wow. And, you know, he was right in more ways than one. But yeah, the, the war, as much as I know some Star Trek fans of the time were against the war, it was such an engaging arc for that show it really does elevate that show very very highly in my estimation but i was i I was just just amazed at the fact that uh rachel's inner voice is little john yeah (laughs) (laughs) i didn't even even thinking of that oh well hey could be worse what (laughs) okay Very well said. Yes, absolutely. Well, Cicero, you're on your own jaunt through a, a less explored aspect of the Star Trek universe. You've got to be coming up near the end of your Voyager watch through. So how is that going? Where are you? And uh, and how, how are you enjoying I am it? happy to say that I have returned to the Alpha Quadrant. Oh, yes. all right. You have seen yes, Endgame. Yes, I have seen Endgame. Uh, yeah, actually, uh, just... Uh, this past week finished uh, four months in uh, I made it through all seven seasons of Voyager um, and what it made me want to do was restart Deep Space Nine because it had been so long since I'd watched that series but, but I sure. figured you know what hold on my brain needs a break from the Gene Roddenberry universe <laughs> and maybe I'll watch some other things so watching Jessica Jones season two, but um, uh, so I have finished Voyager. I have, uh, you know, uh, watched Captain slash, uh, well, Captain Janeway and her mm-hmm. crew make their way from the Alpha Quadrant to the Delta Quadrant and back again, and uh, and it was it was it was a fun time. Definitely a better show than people give it credit for. Um, that it, okay, yeah. See, that's what yeah, I was going to ask you next: is how? Yeah, it's it's you know it's not nearly as maligned as Enterprise was. I think I think people mm-hmm. were getting by the time Enterprise came, it was a bit of a departure, um, and people I think people were having uh, suffering from uh, Star Trek fatigue. Uh, when when yeah. that hit, I think Voyager uh, did a little to push that on um, the absurdity of Voyager. Like the 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 season of Voyager or the series of Voyager started by them saying they they've got you know limited resources, both uh, you know uh, energy resources and armament resources, and then I think there is a like a YouTube video of like every time the uh voyager or or you know voyager shot off photon torpedoes 
Um, you know, mm-hmm. so I mean, they started, they had like, they had an outrageously low complement of, of photon torpedoes somewhere around like 40, um, when, when mm-hmm. the show began. Uh, and then in the seven years, they must have shot, shot like a thousand torpedoes. And it was, you know, like, so that, that was really absurd. And, and I was listening to another show where they were talking about, um, they, so what's, what is that? Two parter where they run into the other Starfleet vessel in the Delta Quadrant and they'll oh, the Equinox. The Equinox, right. So they, you know, they, they board the Equinox and the Equinox is all disheveled. They really don't have any, uh, their, you know, their resources are really low. The, the, the ship itself is in, in ill repair. Uh, you know, everything is, is, is really kind of gone, gone to the wayside on the equinox. But then you go back to the Voyager and the Voyager looks like, uh, they just had a cleaning crew come through. Like you can, <laughs> you can eat off of any deck in, in all of Voyager for the entirety of the show. And that just didn't seem realistic. Um, but you know, like those are, those are things to quibble about and things to be critical about. Um, for a show that was very, very good. And, um, you know, uh, I will be part of the Neelix Defense Force because uh, <laughs> uh, 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 another another portion of the show that was maligned was uh, the portrayal of Neelix or the Neelix character in, in general. Um, besides him being a... Uh, um, a interspecies uh, pedophile... Um, outside of outside of his uh, questionable uh, uh, romantic romantic interests in the beginning of the of the series, he really did. Um, while he playing the foil to a lot of Tuvok's kind of uh, uh, shenanigans or what have you, um, it, he definitely had a role on that show that I think was underappreciated. So, um, I really sure. got to, I really got, uh, I got a chance to, to like what he did. Um, and, uh, you know, I was, I was kind of sad that the show was, was ending. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a good show. It was a good show. Good, good time. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And now that blind spot is totally cleared up. So, uh, as far as your, your right. Trek perceptions are concerned. So, that's going to be great going forward, especially if if and when Voyager becomes a topic of a full episode, then you'll probably be our go-to Voyager experts since yeah. you're the one who most freshly watched it. Fresh in my mind. Yeah. Except absolutely. I can't remember the Equinox. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the only time that Voyager seemed disheveled was during the Year of Hell, but right. of course that doesn't count. Right. So yeah, you're 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 right. You're the the only thing that I took from that was that the Equinox that was sort of like a manifestation of them doing things the wrong way. And since Voyager did things the right way, right. They, their ship is in better shape. But is more like right, right. still doesn't necessarily make sense considering the stress of the journey that right. they were on. Oh, now, oh wait a minute. Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. there's one other major bone that I have to pick with this with this show. There was an episode late in either late in season six or in early season seven where they pick up uh, these fugitives that were on this prison barge on their way to 
the death row on you know for this this planet or a species or what have you uh mm-hmm. and they were so there was a prison a prison ship that was uh, that was about to explode, and the Voyager crew beamed everyone aboard. And there were, you know, all of these hardened criminals and the uh, the the cops, so you know, whatever the correctional officers, whatever the the prison guards. Mm-hmm. And the prison guards treated everyone like crap. And there was this one dude that was super homicidal, and it turns out that that dude had something wrong with his brain that didn't allow him to feel empathy and uh seven of nine used and used one of her nanoprobes and it repaired part of his brain and now he felt empathy and and you know it was all about the you know the the reprieve that he could get and you know kind of the reversal of fortune for that for that particular character the subplot the b plot was about neelix talking to this other guy who was part of this marginalized race of people that where the guy basically said he happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and all of his people are you know are incarcerated at rates that are far are you know far beyond their uh the rates of this other race and oh, and and not commensurate with their with their population size right so, you know, immediately as a person of color made me think of the way that that, you know, black black people and marginalized people and people of color in this country are incarcerated at, a, a, you know, incredibly alarming rates and have, have been, you know, completely disenfranchised. And this guy was talking about how he's disenfranchised and Neelix went to bat for this guy. There was a power outage in on the on the ship. And there was so like there was a defect like a impromptu prison riot where these guys were trying to get away um and the dude tries to get away and he like now looks at one of his oppressors and he was going to kill one of the oppressors and uh you know one of the officers and neelix sees him and he you know gets a disappointing face and then so you know they had this b story as soon as that happened they just stopped. They went and ignored completely the fact that this guy had been uh, systemically, you know, like him and all everyone that looked like him and everyone that was from his race had been systemically marginalized and disenfranchised by this other race of people. And that was the predicament that, you know, that those circumstances of what caused his predicament. And, and they were just like, oh, well, you know what? You messed up. You should have when when the alarm went off or when the force field went off you should have just not done anything and then i would still like you and maybe we would be having a a trial to see if we could get you off as well but you tried to get away so you know now screw you mm-hmm. not not black guy <laughs> and, not yeah, a, yeah. so kind of a half measure as far as uh illustrating a, a very real problem right right exactly and it, yeah so i was i was very very upset at the end of that episode because of the way they sure. handled that um but yeah again bones to pick sorry sorry chris you were gonna ask a question i was just gonna Please. ask you how uh endgame matched up with the other finales that you'd see um so that you know i mean they're all they're all they're all uh special snowflakes um you know i think that uh endgame worked really well for um what it was it was definitely 
better. It sat with me better than Enterprise's ending. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, the, that whole holodeck thing. You know, I, I mm-hmm. mean, obviously you did get some historical context within within that one and, and the formation of the Federation. Um, yeah. But uh, um, uh, the, fun, the fun thing about Endgame was that Voyager throughout the series played fast and loose with uh, time travel. And, yes. And the fact that the last episode was another time travel episode. Um, work perfectly within within the context of that show um it did make it did make things a little super neat at the end right uh, because you know clearly they went in and you know not spoilers for uh non-spoilers for people who haven't seen voyager all the way through uh, there were some crew members that had died uh, and Janeway, Admiral Janeway, decided to use time travel yet again to right those wrongs. And, uh, you know, so this is the spoiler part. She did right the wrongs. So, um, and, and <laughs> what a shot. Right, right. And, and so those, those crew members were, were alive at the, at the end of the episodes. But, uh, but yeah. So, I mean, outside of that, like it would have been nice. It would have been very deep space 90 of them to kind of have some characters not make it and and you mm-hmm. just have to yeah. sit and live with the fact that someone that you may have liked uh didn't make it to the end and didn't you know kind of fulfill their dreams but uh you know outside of that it was fine sure yeah Rachel do you, do you like Endgame just as a finale I barely remember it <laughs> I guess that says that <laughs> all right well Fair enough. Well, always good to catch up with what everybody has been doing in Star Trek. But now let's move on to the main event where we talk about the latest Star Trek Discovery tie-in novel, Drastic Measures. Now, a quick note before we begin. This is very much a cumulative episode of Discovery Debrief. So that means that we're going to talk freely about everything that transpired in the show's first season and how it relates or doesn't relate to this book. So spoilers will abound for the show if you haven't actually finished Discovery Season 1. Like our last book discussion, we're not going to go too deeply into the plot except for maybe at the very end but we likely will be discussing some aspects of it that you can only glean by reading the book. So just fair warning, if this is a book that you plan on reading and you want to go in completely cold to the story, then you may want to save this episode for when you actually have finished it yourself. Otherwise, if you're going to stick with us, thanks for coming aboard. Uh, The trek that we're going to be talking about besides the novel uh, will consist of, like I said, Star Trek Discovery Season 1, Uh, The Conscience of the King, Season 1, Episode 12 of Star Trek, the original series, basically provides the backbone for this entire story. So uh, if you have not seen that episode and are planning to read this book, definitely watch it. Or, or, I mean, if you've read the book already and you haven't seen the episode, then lucky for you, it makes for a great sequel. Right. (laughs) It wraps everything up pretty well. So so definitely watch that. So Chris, it's... So you're saying uh, season one, episode 12, Wikipedia says yeah. season one, episode 13, Netflix has it as season one, episode 14. So- okay. So what's probably happening is that 
uh, the 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 second one that you mentioned is counting the cage right. as episode one. Right. Memory Alpha right. counts the cage as episode zero right. and goes in broadcast order. So I think that accounts for the discrepancy. But as it's listed on uh, on Memory Alpha, it's episode twelve. But on Netflix, yeah, it probably reads differently. But either way, yes. definitely watch the Conscience of the King. However, you've absorbed this book, whether you're planning to or whether you already have, watch that episode. It's very important. Uh, we are going to also do a loose mention of the Counterclock Incident, which is season two, episode six of Star Trek, the animated right. series. And the reason for that will become clear. There's a couple of loose aspects of the continuity of Star Trek Enterprise that might come up, though not directly. It's just a, I'd like to put that down as a baseline. And finally, um, Rachel is actually going to offer some comparisons later on to the way that the Tarsus Four massacre was depicted in another high-profile expanded universe work, the autobiography of James T. Kirk by author David A. Goodman. But the big one, unsurprisingly, is the Conscience of the King. That's definitely the one to uh, to yes. have seen. So um, let's begin. So here's the description of drastic measures from the book jacket. It is 2246. 10 years prior to the battle at the binary stars and an aggressive contagion is ravaging the food supplies of the remote Federation colony Tarsus four and the 8,000 people who call it home. Distress signals have been sent, but any meaningful assistance is weeks away. Lieutenant commander Gabriel Lorca and a small team assigned to a Starfleet monitoring outpost are caught up in the escalating crisis and bear witness as the colony's governor, Adrian Kodos employs an unimaginable solution in order to prevent mass starvation. While awaiting transfer to her next assignment, Commander Philippa Giorgio is tasked with leading to Tarsus IV a small, hastily assembled group of first responders. It's hoped this advance party can help stabilize the situation until more aid arrives, but Giorgio and her team discover that they're too late. Governor Kodos has already implemented his heinous strategy for extending the colony's besieged food stores and safeguarding the community's long-term survival. In the midst of their rescue mission, Giorgio and Lorca must now hunt for the architect of this horrific tragedy and the man whom history will one day brand Kodos the Executioner. And I got to say, when I first read that description, I was immediately excited for this book. First of all, you know, as a big TOS guy, uh, Tarsus IV is something that looms over 23rd century Star Trek continuity because it shouldn't happen, right. right? I mean, the Federation is an advanced society. Something like that, a heinous act of brutal murder and martial law should not happen in the mid-23rd century, but it gets passed. So right off the bat, this book differentiates itself by being different on a kind of fundamental level when compared with the first novel. Because Desperate Hours was far more of a prequel with close proximity to the beginning of the show, taking place just one year before Discovery's pilot episode. Drastic Measures, on the other hand, takes a much further look back in the lives of the two major characters, introduced to the canon by Discovery in the forms of Philippa Giorgio and Gabriel Lorca. So first things first, without specifics, give us your overall impressions of the book. Rachel, how does Drastic Measures compare to Desperate Hours for you, and what did you think of this story as it was told here? You know, I remember thinking while I was listening to it that they're more similar than I thought they were going to be. Really? Because they're both kind of the 
Philippa Giorgio coming to rescue a, yeah, a, a colony in distress. <laughs> so, I mean, the people around her are different, but they kind of had some similar vibes due to that. But of course, um, this was a lot more harrowing yeah. in that there was a lot <laughs> more scary stuff happening and, you know, 4,000 people getting murdered and... yeah. Um, that, but you know, overall, uh, this book was more action packed. Yeah. I thought, mm-hmm. I think it had, I, I don't know, like it, I wanted to say that it has more like callbacks to other, you know, like TOS mm-hmm. stuff, but that might not be true because, mm-hmm. uh, there was callbacks to like Pike and, um, Spock. Cage. Yeah, so maybe Spock that's not was true. a major character. But, um, yeah, overall, uh, I think I liked this one slightly better. Okay. And um, you liked the last one reasonably well. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was good. Yeah. All right. Very good. Cicero, you've hinted in the past that you've absorbed expanded universe stuff in other universes, particularly Star Wars. So before you tell us what you think of this book, give us a brief overview overview of your history with EU and tie that in with how drastic measures adds up in your estimation. So Star Trek EU, this is the very first book that I've ever read. Okay. Um, I think I want to say that I've, there were uh, a couple of books that I, that I may have purchased or may have been given uh, that I was going to read and didn't. Um, but yeah, so this is the very first, uh, Star Trek EU, uh, book that I've ever read. Um, I have when the Star Wars EU began in earnest in the early, early Mm nineties, um, I, I really consumed that voraciously. Um, and, and I think over the first five years, they may have been like, maybe three or four of those books that i hadn't read okay wow um, so so yeah i was i was i was super super deep so you were into, into like uh, the yuzhen vong invasion and yeah, oh yeah and oh yeah big time big time cool. you know big time into talon karad and marajade and mm-hmm. and uh you know grand grand uh grand emperor thrawn and <laughs> yeah so so all all of that stuff um this book uh, drastic measures was it was fun it was just it was a it was a fun book to listen to uh the 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 uh the narration was really really well done um which I, i'm sure we'll get to at some point yeah. uh during the course of this but uh but yeah it was it was a really good book um again it and you know the funny thing is so i i watched uh conscience of the king today mm-hmm. i feel like for the first time i know i've seen it before sure um because i've seen every episode of tos but uh, you know it may have been without an exaggeration it may have been 30 years since i had seen that oh wow since, in that uh episode so um you know the fact the fact is that my memory of those things or of that episode was was non-existent at this point um and especially compared to my memory of the events of tarsus 4 um as a result of reading or you know reading drastic measures mm-hmm. um 
as a as a fan of Star Trek, I always knew about Tarsus Four, and it was always something that, like, it it was it was definitely something that was in my head. Tarsus Four is important, um, but I don't know if I ever really understood or remembered why. Um, and so, uh, reading this book really helped, you know, obviously f- fill out that world and, and, and color that world for me. And then going back, uh, and I, you know, I did this in reverse and then going back and watching Conscious of the King, um, which, which works out perfectly because it, you know, the, that again transpires 20 years after the events, uh, of, on, uh, Tarsus four. Yeah. So, uh, the, it was perfect to have all of that kind of sit together um and and really fill in all of those gaps uh so uh it was a, it's just it was a great book it was a really really great book uh, re- you know if you if you're listening to this now if you're still listening to this now and haven't read the book read the book um it's, it's really good yeah I, I i definitely tend to agree um I remember first becoming aware of Tarsus Four in um, because obviously as a kid, growing up mostly in the '90s, you know I would voraciously watch a Star Trek rerun whenever it came on, but I was never able to actually watch the show from beginning to end in full succession until it was released on DVD, and right. that's that's when I actually fully absorbed the original series for the first time. I mean, I had seen several of the episodes multiple times i remember when i was a kid going to blockbuster and renting uh an episode at a time because they were all just on single vhs (laughs) tapes so some episodes i had seen a lot more than others like the enemy within i basically have memorized because that was one of the ones that i had rented as a kid but um i remember the first time when watching the whole show that i watched the conscience of the king and it was kind of horrifying because You know, you have these people on the ship, a friend of Captain Kirk, systematically murdered. Riley, who I always liked, almost gets murdered. Right. And uh, not in a uh, a clean sort of kid-friendly way either. I mean, it's, it's 60s TV, so it's not going to be egregiously violent. But compared with other episodes of TOS, Conscience of the King is pretty dark. Uh, so the imagination then dictates... The events on Tarsus Four have to be crazy dark uh, and just unbelievably horrific. And this book kind of does fulfill that imagination I'd had about the events of Tarsus Four for a very long time. It gave it a more realistic bent, I guess, because you get a very boots on the ground perspective from the characters, which is great. You know, I right. mean, how does a military officer, particularly in the case of Gabriel Lorca, respond to a crisis like this when backup is for all he knows a thousand days away or or longer right so um that stuff the book was far more harrowing than i thought it would be and it made it endlessly exciting to absorb so i was very very happy with it i liked it as much as i like desperate hours i like drastic measures significantly more uh not just because it gives greater context to a big event in the 23rd century but because, and we'll get into this later, but it also gives us a really in-depth look, first of all, at, at George O, who initially wasn't really going to be included in this book. It was actually Dayton Ward who insisted that he tell a story with her because it was mostly supposed to be about Lorca, from what I understand. Huh. 
And uh, as a duo, they worked really well in this book. Yes. So I was just over the moon about that. So yeah, I really liked it. But um, first things first, or I guess second things second, let's talk about uh, the characters, um, particularly when it comes to the two leads. So first off, Elephant in the Room that we can't help but notice. When this book was first announced, it was announced in mid-October of 2017. The show had only been on the air for a couple of weeks. We had no idea that the Gabriel Lorca featured in this book is a guy that we would never actually meet on the show. Right. So automatically, uh, the the book takes on more value because, and I'll bring this up later too, but uh, the book is written in conjunction, not directly, not hand in hand, but it features the involvement of some aspect of the real discovery writer's room. Like they, they check on things when it comes to these discovery tie-in novels to make sure that basically things are kosher with the show. Right. So the full knowledge of the writer's room affects what is put into these books to some degree. And uh, so that puts an entirely other dimension to me on this book because the it's the characterization of Commander Lorca, Lieutenant Commander Lorca, of the Prime Universe, right. uh, since we only got to know his Mirror Universe counterpart. So how well, what do you guys think of the characterization of Lieutenant Commander Lorca of the Prime Star Trek Universe, particularly as it relates to the Mirror Universe counterpart that we got to know so well over the course of the show's first season? Rachel? You want me to move closer? Why don't, why don't you scoot? Sure. <laughs> oh, that wasn't good for the floor. Okay. Um, what do I think of Lorca? Are you not paying attention? I am paying attention. <laughs> I just don't. Caffeine? I don't remember what the question is. Okay. I just just what I think of. Um, what do you think of the Prime characterization Lorca. of Prime Lorca as it relates to the guy we met in the show? Okay. I think that Prime Lorca is more moral and more controlled mm -hmm. right so he you know has just lost the woman he's in love with and i feel like mirror Lorca would like probably go like medieval <laughs> on everybody and just start killing people but prime Lorca really keeps it you know he keeps it reined in mm -hmm. for the entirety of the book and you know he's feeling it he, you know, because of the narration. Yeah. You know, he's feeling all of this rage and this anger, but he still sort of he acts properly mm -hmm. throughout um, the whole. He acts whole like book. a Starfleet officer. Yeah, he acts like a Starfleet officer. Unlike the guy we met. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think there's there's one passage in the book where he, you know, he's thinking about punching a guy mm -hmm. and, yeah. and Mira Lorca would have punched the guy. Oh, totally. So <laughs> would have broken his nose probably. Yeah. So that's the difference between them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's well said. Cicero, how did, how did this strike you? Because I'm not sure how aware you were necessarily of the fact that prime Lorca was going to be featured and, you know, coupling that with the fact that we never met him on the show. So did you find this like educational when it came to, the prime Gabriel Lorca and how did you think the two men compared? Well, I, yeah, I've definitely thought uh, this was an education and a guy that we never got to meet, never had a chance to meet, uh, nor will we ever meet Chris. 
Uh, we're get, hey, <laughs> know where this is going at the end. I that I do that I do. But um, having having said all of that, um, it it was a a great education in uh, who Prime Lorca was um, or is, and uh, and how how much being a Starfleet officer meant to him. Um, because clearly he was in love and and was 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 so in love that he had daydreamed about giving up his commission to live with this woman and this woman is murdered um by by this man who you know i mean in just the 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 coldest and most efficient of ways um, you yeah. know, she was she was murdered as if she was murdered by a Terran, um, along with three thousand nine hundred and ninety nine other humans on uh, humans yeah. and other species um, on on Tarsus Four, um, and and he was able to still continue to do his job uh, despite himself because being a Starfleet officer meant that much, and the and the tenants and the principles of Starfleet meant that much to him and he believed in them um versus uh, uh the lorca that we know and and loathe um he i mean that guy would have first off that guy would have agreed with kodos um you yeah know, you, know, you know he would have said hey look that's an effective way to make sure that everybody else survives um, you know, and then if if you know if if backed into a corner where he had to do a job, that no one would have been left alive. Uh, there were so many there were so many opportunities that uh, that the, the Lorca in this book had had to uh, end the lives lives of people, and he chose not to. That mm-hmm. the Lorca that that we got to see on Discovery. Would not have would not have shown anywhere near the the level of restraint uh, that we saw in in drastic measures by Lieutenant Commander Lorca. So Captain Lorca, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was would have. I mean, his body count would have been it would have been at least uh, a, a fourth of of Kodos the executioner <laughs> you know? yeah probably he would have been he would have oh, been man. lurka the disintegrator so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's well said um yeah i i'm i'm obviously i'm in agreement with you guys the uh i can understand now why this guy ultimately became a starfleet captain you know because obviously having only met the the mirror universe version of Lorca, it's hard to tell exactly why the prime version had earned a commission for a starship command and the ability for prime Lorca to make a decision quickly while also adhering to uh, not just his training in the most, in the, in the most specific way possible, but he also does have a belief in the ideals that define the Federation. It's a darker flavor. Sure. Like there's, there are some noted similarities, I think, between the two Lorcas, but this guy is a good man. Like, I can say that with certainty. You cannot say that with certainty about Mira Lorca. He's a driven guy. He's a bit obsessive and a little creepy, but uh, I don't know if he's necessarily you, good. Uh, but no, no. Gabriel Lorca is most certainly not good. So, 
you can say that with he was the opposite of you can say that with certainty that he with absolute certainty not good not a good guy not not by any stretch of the imagination so uh that's another reason why i hope zachy reads this book at some point because you know he, he it's something that he talked about throughout our entire discussion of the first season uh he likes the good versions of these characters and Lorca he's he's similar enough to the mirror universe version of Lorca that I can see some crossover and some character sure. traits but this guy he's very much like a, a Star Trek Batman <laughs> in the sense that he's he's a good guy but he comes with a harder edge to him yeah. and I like that unsurprisingly I like that quite a bit but uh, let's move along to Commander Giorgio because she was also the the second major character of focus here. Uh, what did you guys think of this earlier look at her career and what her perspective provided to the story? Do you think you might know her a little bit better after reading this, or do you feel like you maybe didn't really get anything essentially insightful about her in this story? Rachel? I mean, I think I know, I feel like I know her a little better just from spending more time with her. I don't think there were any like crazy revelations about her or Mm -hmm. anything, but um, I definitely felt like she was the same character um, that from uh, Desperate Hours and from when we saw her in Discovery. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Do you find her as a as a relatable protagonist this time? Because we got such a look at her, you know, the first time we meet her in the book, she's like kind of tired because she hasn't had enough sleep and she hasn't had enough coffee, but she still has to deal with these administrative tasks, which comes with the territory. And then she's thrown into this impossibly terrible situation and her reaction and her mettle is tested. I didn't have a ton of feelings about her characterization. Okay. I, it was just, you know, that's Giorgio. Yeah. And she was being, she was being Giorgio. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it was, it was true to what I understand her character to be. Very good. Cicero, how about you? What do you think? Well, uh, considering that I hadn't read uh, Desperate Hours, it was cool to get to know a little bit more about this uh, this person that that uh, we didn't get a lot of time with uh, within within Discovery, uh, the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was really great. Um, but but I think Rachel is right. Uh, you know, she's kind of laughing about it, but I think she is right. Like th- there was. There were no revelations. There was nothing about uh, the characterization of uh, Philippa Giorgio in in uh, in drastic measures that made me that led me to believe that I'd gleaned some uh, some like terribly new insight about her. Um, outside mm-hmm. of the fact that she was ready to leave the the Norbonne, to go on to her next ship to actually go on to a uh was she was she set to go on a constitution class or at least an intrepid class starship i i believe that it is a constitution class that was named as the defiant as far as i know there was only one defiant in the 23rd century and it was a constitution class and it's destined to end up in the mirror. Right. Universe. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, I mean, the, the fact is that she was, she was kind of, I mean, she wasn't phoning it in, but she was definitely uh, kind of done with this assignment. 
Uh, she was ready to move on to more interstellar stuff. And the fact that the fact is she was thrown into this like incredibly, um, incredibly terrible, um, just major moment in the history of the the federation uh and and you know and she performed admirably she performed as who who she performed in a way that would would lead me to believe that she is the same woman that we saw on discovery um and and even yeah and even emperor jojo that she was just you know a, a few degrees removed from Emperor Jojo, even even in so much uh, that like I talked about Emperor Jojo being matronly towards Burnham during the show, you can definitely see yeah. those aspects of uh, Prime Jojo and in Commander Jojo during during drastic measures. Um, you know, that she definitely has she can be hard when she needs to be. She was, you know, she was all but ready for command. And then when she needed to, to show a softer side, she can turn that on um, with, within a heartbeat and, uh, and be as, as welcoming and as warm as you would need her to be in, in any given moment. Yeah. And, and you know, she had her faculties about her yes. in all of these crazy situations. Like you said, I mean, she's not going to throw a scowl at a little child who has a stuffed Andorian under her arm right. uh, just because she's going through something that's personally stressful. She knows how to react to a certain situation or later on when she comes upon a very strong willed teenage boy, uh, she reacts with being impressed at his, his ingenuity in trying to solve a specific problem that she also has. Right. So yeah, I mean, this just makes me pine for her more in the show. Like, I hope that we actually do get at least one episode of the show in a future season that goes back to uh, her in command of the Shenzhou with Michael as her executive officer. Uh, just because she is, as far as I, I feel anyway, maybe you guys disagree, but as far as I feel, she is the only sort of classically molded Starfleet captain that we have gotten out of Discovery thus far. That I mean, it's it's twofold. That makes Discovery infinitely more interesting because it is so atypical. But as a Star Trek fan, I also kind of miss that certainty that comes from such an effective commander. Uh, we don't know who the new captain of, of the Discovery itself is going to be. And uh, obviously, we're going to see Captain Pike, who is a, a decorated guy in and of himself. But uh, over the show so far, where we stand right now, the 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 prime example of a Starfleet captain is Philippa Giorgio, and I would love to see more stories that feature her brand of, of command and the lessons that she undoubtedly imparted on both Michael and Saru. So uh, I loved pretty much every moment that she was in this book because she brought a level-headedness that Lorca certainly didn't have, mm -hmm. um, but was also a very recognizable uh, truthfulness to sort of the best of what Starfleet officers can be. Like she had no greater destiny than to be a Starfleet captain. And, uh, and this book just kind of pushes that forward even more in my mind. But um, let's go along to, to a couple of other characters because we met quite a bit of new characters that are only appearing in this story. Uh, and I have a particular soft spot for Captain Korapati of the Narbonne. I thought he was a great character. Right. 
And of course, uh, little Shannon Moulton, who would end up being kind of important at the end of the book, but uh, she provided that look at the more tender side of Giorgio that I certainly wasn't expecting this situation to to bring out of her. And I liked Lorca's security team as well that actually went after Kodo. So Cicero, why don't you start us off? Did anyone else sort of stick out to you in uh, reading? Well, I really, I really liked all of Lorca's security team. Um, mm-hmm. They, I can't remember all of their names, uh, but yeah, me, but, me but just yeah, yeah, but they, but they seemed, uh, they seemed plucky. Uh, they, they really seemed like, like about their wits and uh were were ready to so they were they were a a microcosm of their commanding of their co of their commanding officer and that was uh, uh well not captain lorca Com- lieutenant commander lorca um you know all of them w- f- thrust into this guerrilla warfare situation all of you know all of them really worked well together and i would have loved to see I would love to see their kind of misadventures on the screen. Like, they, you know, they yeah. just seem like the type of guys that it really made me think of like, uh, you know, uh, BSG or something else where there are uh, mm-hmm. guerrilla commandos that are uh, becoming insurgents stirring a coup or something to that effect. They really uh evoke those types of images and those emotions out of me and i've really enjoyed them so all of those guys they were they were super cool yeah you know i was thinking when you were watching deep space nine rachel because there was mention of some orders coming down for the defiant to help protect a brigade of starfleet marines mm-hmm. and i was like i want to see that story you know starfleet marines yeah because we, we we did see a couple of starfleet soldiers over the course of deep space nine but as far as i know that's all we saw of of Starfleet's actual armed forces, so yeah, I mean that would be cool. Who knows? Maybe or hopefully someday we'll actually get maybe an EU book that actually focuses on some of the troops in the war we just saw with the Klingons, because that would be cool. But uh, what did you think of some of the supporting characters? Any of them jump out at you? Um, I really liked Captain Koropati. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked that there were Indian characters. There was, uh, it seemed like there was a lot yes. of representation in a lot of the supporting characters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's definitely, uh, the case, but it's like, it seems like, it seems like, like there, I feel like there hasn't been very many Indian characters in Star Trek. No, you know, true. Star Trek is, yeah. you know, diverse, but. Um, so I was glad to see that because there are a lot of Indian people on the planet. Yes, so it true. would seem to reason <laughs> yes. that there would be quite a few of them in the future. In Starfleet, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so that was good. Um, and uh, yeah, I just I, I liked him. He was a good presence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also liked Shannon Moulton. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, her mom is definitely mentioned, or or maybe she's mentioned. So somebody Molten yeah, is mentioned her- in yes uh, uh, TOS episodes. So. The the name given in the episode was actually Molson, but yeah, that's that's who Dayton Ward based that name uh, off of because uh, it was E Molson in the TOS episode, and that's her mom, and her mom yeah. was named Eliana Molten. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's yeah, I'm pretty sure that's the same person. Um. But yeah, and I also like the doctor, like the kind of yes, annoying doctor yes. on the Narbonne. And uh, and th- this isn't a character, but the Narbonne itself, 
like the process that described actually lifting off of the planet and landing on the planet yeah, as a colony cool. ship. I thought that was cool. Like, you know, the, they have to brace for when the, the natural gravity kicks in. Yeah, it makes and their the, stomach feel weird. Yeah, and yeah. the artificial <laughs> gravity kicks off. And I, I thought that stuff was cool. But uh, yeah, well, very well said, guys. But we have to, of course, talk about the biggest, most consequential cameo in this book. <laughs> Yeah, you're laughing. You know where I'm going with this. Uh, which featured characters from Conscience of the King, particularly Thomas Layton and a young, brash, and capable teenager with a pretentious-sounding name, James Tiberius Kirk. So right up front, and Cicero, you had mentioned this at the top of the show, but I have to give kudos to actor Robert Petkoff, who performed the audiobook, because he does such an awesome job in recreating the verbal stylings of William Shatner. He really did. He man. did such a good, and you mentioned this to me at first because you had told me that uh, that Kirk makes an appearance, which I pretty much expected anyway. But I, I probably wouldn't have known to actually listen for that unless you, Rachel, had told me that. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I loved how Kirk himself was described in this story. The things that immediately come to me. Uh, when he's asked by uh, the security team and uh, Commander Giorgio if he was trying to break into the commu- the computer system, he just goes, yes. Right. <laughs> and the way that it's described is because he doesn't believe he was doing anything wrong. And that's such a Kirk aspect, you know, like he's he was not a guy as a, as a Starfleet captain to follow orders if he thought the orders were not serving the, the greater good. And this is sort of a microcosm of that, which I loved. And even there was a Kirk Fu reference because he has these security people rush him and he's half their size and he still manages to get them off of him. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's Kirk yeah, Fu. I he mean, already he, knew Kirk he already Fu. could do it. He could already move his body in a way that completely flung larger people than himself off of him in the most dramatic ways possible as we saw so often in TOS. So I thought that that was great. But, um, you know, also Thomas Layton, we don't see much of him in conscience of the King, but you just get this like bubbling total rage in the episode from him. And obviously we see that half of his face is gone. And I love that the book gave context to that because he, could have gotten it replaced, but the book explains that he chose not to as sort of a reminder of what he experienced. And I thought that that made perfect sense within the context of the story. But overall, what did you guys think of uh, of taking a look at Tom Layton and our brief encounter with the future captain of the Starship Enterprise? Cicero, this had to have kind of made you excited. It did. Bit. So, um, you know, uh, the again, because of my uh lack of awareness or a uh, lack of memory of of conscious of the king from TOS Thomas Layton did wasn't a tip it wasn't a tip off for me that I was that sure. I was about to get uh an you know an early uh early uh Jim Kirk but um the the whole Jim Kirk thing was was super super cool now the thing that confused me was the fact that uh Kirk's mom was talking about her father was talking about his father yes and you know as far as as what? far as i knew 
his father was dead, or at least I'm not sure if that was alternate timelines, uh, because it know, was. because of it, you know, the Kelvin timeline or or uh, what was going on. So that was that was the thing. That yeah. Was so confusing. the way that the the way that it was explained by uh, Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi was that had the the Narada not shown up okay. in front of the Kelvin, um. Winona Kirk had basically asked the medical personnel on board the uh, on board the Kelvin to make sure that she wasn't actually going to go into labor until they returned to Earth because right. that's where they were headed. And then the incursion of the Narada diverted them, and she basically had to get the baby out. So yes, in the Prime timeline, um, we know that. Uh, that George Kirk survives until at least 2266 because Spock even mentions in the 2009 movie that George survived to see Jim become captain of the enterprise. So yes, everything's kosher as far as I know when it comes to that. So yeah. So then, yeah. So, I mean, that was, that was the big takeaway. That was the big, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, moment for me with, with regards to that, but the Mm -hmm. rest of it was awesome. Like the rest of it, you know, to, to hear Jim Kirk talk about, uh, what he was doing, why he was doing it and to show the aptitude and the, just the, uh, the precocious nature of of who he is, you know, led me to believe that he, of course, would grow up one day to be uh, one of the greatest commanders in the history of Starfleet. Yeah, yeah, very true. Rachel, young Jim Kirk, that definitely put a smile on my face. Yeah, um, I mean, you were there, right? No, like, no, I, I, I was running to you. you. Or did you I sent text me a, you? You sent me a text. Yeah. 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 Yeah, um, no, I totally out of left field for me. I totally, I did, just wasn't expecting to see him in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would hope to though, because you had said at the end of the Desperate Hours book that you wanted him to show up in this book. Yeah, but then I forgot about that. Oh, okay. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I would, yeah, and especially not. I thought if he was going to be in it, he would be in the scene where the people actually die. Mm-hmm. Um, but since he was not, um, and yeah, when, when you saw him afterwards, it was, it was great. Um, mm-hmm. and I, yeah, I liked the characterization of Thomas Layton, uh, mm-hmm. I think really adds to his character in the conscience of the King. Yeah. So. Yeah. Because we only briefly saw him and he, he was just angry all the time. And then this, we actually see like, holy crap, he suffered he a lot. Killed his parents. So yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, I was a huge because this is all, for just for context purposes. If you haven't read the book and are still listening to this for some reason, uh, this is only one chapter. Young Jim Kirk is only there pretty much for for one chapter, and I feel like it was just enough. You know, like it wasn't. It certainly wasn't too much, and I also don't feel like it was too little because we actually did get quite a bit of. Uh, classic Kirk out of this, which you wouldn't have thought coming from the fact that he was a 13-year-old kid. So, um, no, I mean, I, I, I absolutely love the way that he was characterized, and I really enjoyed uh, how Giorgio seemed to recognize that there was something that was special about him. I mean, it was a little ham-fisted, but in this respect, I can absolutely forgive it because right, they didn't right. give us too much. Like, it could have been all right. about 
Kirk, right? I mean, they could have done that very easily. And instead, he's just one aspect of this larger tragedy. But for those of us who know James T. Kirk really, really well, it's Mm -hmm. easy to see how this would be a foundational moment in his life. And, uh, and I thought it was handled brilliantly uh, in, in the actual material. Uh, well, what about Kodos, guys? Because, you know, we met Kodos kind of in an off-kilter way in the episode. Or Cicero, right. you met him pretty much for the first time in a substantive way in this book. So why don't, why don't you walk us through that? Because obviously you, don't ha- or you didn't right. have a huge well of information to draw from before reading this book. And today you just finished Kodos's story. So how does that all kind of come together in your mind? Well, I mean, it is, it is, it's a complete story for me now. Um, yeah. And, and the, the brilliance of this book is that, well, I, I, I kind of understood. And, and to be fair, the moment in the, the, atrium the arena um the the graveyard that it became um Mm -hmm. was when i really started paying attention like uh, you know i was i was 65 70 percent focused uh as i was listening to it on my commute um before that moment and it happens fairly early in in the course of the book um, but you know, mm-hmm. they just kind of set everything up. But as he's giving his speech and he's, he's explaining things to people, I, you know, my spidey sense went off and I said, Oh, s- somebody's about to die. <laughs> and, you know, and maybe lots of people are about to die, but I'm not exactly sure. And, and that's when I really started to pay attention. And, uh, the fact that he gives the speech, um, and he talks about the sacrifice and all of this other stuff. Uh, and, and then he does what he does. Um, was horrifying. But when you listen to what he had to say about it, or, or at least understanding, well, both understanding um, uh, the description of Kodos, uh, of Adrian Kodos, the governor, who, or Adrian Kodos, the scientist, who basically had to become governor who decided that this version of eugenics was the way that was the way that they would survive um where he you know mm-hmm. he had to make these hard choices gives you a little bit of empathy and it gives you some some sense of understanding of what was going on through his head at that particular moment and it it makes sense in the most perverse ways possible why someone faced with uh global extinction or at least you know colony-wide extinction would do what he feels like he needs to do to try and preserve the healthiest among them as long as he possibly can in the face of of these you know two terrible choices um and and I think they did a really good job within the book of of uh, articulating his level of regret, you know, that he definitely regretted the decision, especially in light of the fact that the Narbonne showed up much sooner than anyone had anticipated. Uh, soon enough, in fact, 
that mm-hmm. he never, you know, I mean, within like a week or something like that, uh, the Narbonne, yeah, the, the Narbonne yeah, was, was really there. Cool. So he, I mean, there was no need for any of this stuff to even have, have happened. Um, so the, the fact is that he, you know, he definitely did show some remorse uh, for what he had done, but he also uh, wasn't remorseful enough to the point where he felt like, all right, I did something horrible. I'm, you know, I'm totally, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm to- totally, reg- I totally regret the decision that I made. And here, you know, here I'm going to pay for that decision. He, he stood behind his decision, realized that this was the only decision that the, it was the best decision of, again, of horrible choices that had to be made with the information that he was given. And he was going to live by those, those decisions and try to preserve his life. And then of course we know that he did, um, you know, at the end of the book. And then of course, in conscious of the King, but in conscious of the King, again, you could see a man now 20 years removed from this terrible decision that the, the weight of it all has weighed on him heavily his entire life and that he he clearly mm-hmm. regrets having made that decision and uh and and you know but again was never so so remorseful that he would turn himself in but he was still you know he still definitely right. uh wanted to regret you know wanted to make amends at least by entertaining people and and being kind of a a um a nonviolent actor in literally an actor, a nonviolent actor in, in, uh, in a way that he could, mm-hmm. um, bring some cheer and, and, uh, good fortune to people across the galaxy. So, um, it, it definitely helped to flesh out, uh, this character that you only know as one of the most vile people in the history of, of humankind during the course of the Federation. Mm-hmm. Sure, that was a very understanding perspective for for Governor Cotto. Some that's very interesting, Rachel. Um, I mean, I don't feel as uh, as much empathy for him <laughs> as, <laughs> as I, I um, think he made some some real bad calls, some real unethical calls. Uh, but yeah, like the the book does explain why he did what he did. And it kind of, um, because the, you know, uh, Starfleet couldn't be 100% honest with the colony about when ships were going to get there because there were, uh, like covert activities going on. Right. So they couldn't say how close some of the ships were because Mm -hmm. they were, you know, top secret. Um, so there's kind of a, you know, an underlying thing there that, you know, if, if Starfleet had been more honest, this wouldn't have happened. Right. Um, but, you know, I still like, I in the way that it's characterized in this book, what happened on Tarsus IV wouldn't have happened if Kodos wasn't there. And if he didn't assume power. Yeah. And if he didn't assume power. So, I, you know, ultimately, I, th- I think that the, you know, responsibility for what happened lies on him. And, and he is, he's not a nice dude in no. the book no. um but yeah i i mean i i understand feeling empathy for the amount of regret that he lived with with the rest of his life um but i would say that's a fitting punishment for 
what he did. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't. I don't really share any empathy for him. Really, I mean, you do see that the the choice weighed on him, but the the thing that sticks with me about him, particularly as it relates to this book, is that the the governor that he deposed had described him as sort of a uh, a, a non caring intellectual where he looked at every problem that had befallen the colony as something that could have been solved pr- through purely mathematics. And obviously he took that to the absolute nth degree. And she found that comforting at the time because at the time so calm. Yes. Right? That's yeah. yes. That's, that's a pivotal detail yeah. because it, it comes, it comes out as someone who might be measured and reasoned in the ability to deal with the problem it doesn't necessarily strike you in the moment or at least before the horror begins that maybe he has a problem with feeling empathy in his brain. Maybe he has like a psychological issue, which you could make an argument about considering that if, if, uh, if Lenore was his daughter, she wasn't exactly the most stable person you came across either. Uh, so she, she had to have gotten it from somewhere and uh, so I have a hard time empathizing with him insofar as he seems like, and I know this is a pejorative term. We probably have scientists that listen to this show. I won't use right. this term. In any, I, I'm married to a scientist, obviously. But uh, <laughs> Kodos is an egghead who got in way over his head because he was only looking at this as a numbers game. I don't necessarily doubt that if he was never in this kind of position of power, maybe he would have never he wouldn't have had the impetus or the uh, the ability to do anything remotely like this but that mistake cost him significantly it basically cost him his life uh, not in in the sense that he would be killed obviously but he had to abandon who he was completely and he also had this this small but devoted sect of followers behind him that completely discounted the moral implications of what he had done in order to defend him. And uh, and he didn't question them. And he even when he's talking to Captain Kirk 20 years after the fact, he's still he, – he, I mean, he doesn't want to admit who he is, but he's still kind of trying to defend those actions. Which well, yeah, and I think I think that's because he believed them. right. Sure, like I think you know that there was there was, man. So that I mean the thing the thing about uh, you know even the most villainous of people believe that they're the hero of their own story. True. Yes, and and uh, and I think that Adrian Kodos believed himself to be heroic. Because he was he was given an impossible task. Mm-hmm. Uh, either we all die quickly, or some people, half of us, die. The 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 sick and the indigent die now, so that we the rest of us have a chance to live either longer. Or uh, long enough that we can we can either find a cure, and then uh, repopulate this colony, and, and those were those were his choices based on the information that he had available, and uh, you know, and again, he looked at this very very clinically, and and yeah. it was these were the choices like you know when I do experiments in the lab, 
these are the, you know, and I'm faced with these types of decisions. It's, it's very, you know, it's very easy to, re- to emotionally remove yourself from making those types of decisions with, with, you know, uh, simple cells or primitive primitive animals but he mm-hmm. he used that same type of rationale to uh and 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 moral compass to make a decision about sentient beings and because he felt like he had to and he felt like this was the the only choice so of course 20 years later when he talks to Kirk He's still going to work within the within the uh, the confines of that reality of that moment, not the reality as it you know as it played out as it bloomed, but the reality of that moment when he made that decision, um, you know, including and and the the sycophants that that followed him believed believed the same you know believed the same things that he did. Um, and, mm-hmm. and they were, you know, what else are you supposed to do? Like, you, this is, this is who I am. And this is the choice that I have to make. I am Adrian Kale. And by the, <laughs> by the way, I mean, I just love the fact that a 50 year old TV episode was the impetus for this kind of discussion. It is. Story. It is awesome. You know, like this is one of the things yeah. that I love yeah. about Star Trek is that you never know how something that was told in a previous story is going to feed something in the future. And it takes, this book takes full advantage of the concept that was explored in conscience of the King and turns it into something that is fully three dimensional from beginning to end. And that's just one of the reasons that I think this book is so easily recommended on my end. So very well said. I think we all have uh, some different ideas of how sympathetic Governor Kudos <laughs> actually is, but that, that makes things interesting. It right. definitely makes things interesting. But uh, let, let's talk a little bit about plot because we focus pretty much on on character at this point. Uh, obviously, we knew going into it, or at least if you'd never seen the episode before, you knew the impetus of the plot uh, right from the outset. But one of the things that I really appreciated about the way that this story was told was just how detailed and real everything felt. You know, the idea of Kodos and his followers enforcing martial law was interesting before the Narbonne arrived. And like we mentioned before, the uh, the description of the, the, the reality of being on a colony ship as it breaks gravity is really cool. It's just like a nice contextual touch with the world. But the story also moves along at a pace that it's probably a little slower than it needs to be. But it uses that time to fill in the details of everything really, really well. So what sticks out with you guys about the way that the story itself was told and the way that the plot moved along? Rachel? I liked the frequent change in perspective. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I think the events uh, in the book happen over a pretty short span of time right yeah but the thing about you know when something traumatic is happening time seems to expand Mm -hmm. and i think that the book captured that sort of feeling really well by sort of switching around to different people and giving a lot of detail of what was happening sort of minute by minute it's Mm -hmm. really like a you know there's not a lot of gaps in in the time um so i think that kept things really exciting uh, even though, you know, you're working with a really condensed timeline. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cicero, how about you? 
Uh, yeah, I think what Rachel said, um, you know, it, it is the when the when you're in a crisis, every every second feels like a minute. Um, every hour feels like a day. And I think the book did a, a, a fantastic job of uh, capturing all of all of that angst, all of that stress. Um, and, and you kind of like life in 2018, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and, and it, it, uh, I, and I think I, I really, uh, appreciated the fact that we did get, um, a lot of the same moments from multiple perspectives, uh, to really kind of, uh, fully, as, as you said before, so eloquently, uh, give, give, each moment three dimensions. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really, it, it was a really cool way to tell a story. And it, it just, it seemed to emphasize just how harrowing all of these events were and, uh, and how unique they are because, you know, we certainly haven't seen the, the movies and the actual episodes definitely save some big moments for big moments, but something like this, it probably would have been more at home in like a tonally speaking in an episode of something like Deep Space Nine, but uh, I mean, just what a what a really cool and sort of refreshing way to give that sort of greater context to a big event in the twenty third century. Uh, but one thing I did definitely want to ask you guys about specifically was the interlude device of the book within a book, uh, because it was kind of at least for me at first it was confusing. Right. I didn't really understand exactly what was going on, but it became much, much clearer over the course of the book. And uh, the the book within a book is called The 4000, and it recapped the disaster and helped give greater context to the way that Federation society viewed the tragedy in the context of history. Uh, so did you guys feel like this enhanced the experience because we shifted you know, from past to future? Uh, or past to present, however you want to look at it, it's re- it's all relative. But uh, do you feel like that enhanced the experience and understanding the implications of this whole ordeal, or did you find it maybe jarring because it moved between time periods so quickly, Cicero? No, it. You know what? It made me think of, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna crush uh, genres, pop culture, geek streams right now. Uh, it, it made me think of the Halo podcast miniseries, Hunt the Truth. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, if you guys, if the, any of you are out there are fans of Halo um, or Master Chief, and you have not uh, listened to Hunt the Truth season one, please do. It is phenomenal. Um, but it, but it really, and it, it, it works in very much the same way as, as like this kind of an investigative, um, uh, biographical retelling of events, um, of a, an event, uh, as they go and they try and find different people that witness that, that event and, and get their perspectives from, from uh you know from that time and and now that some time has passed you know their reflections on on the events and how they unfolded um that was i really enjoyed that i i enjoyed the fact that that was happening it didn't confuse me in the least um you know i really had mm-hmm. a sense of what was going on almost from you know almost from the moment go and uh i i appreciated um the context that it gave for different characters outside of the crisis. 
Um, so, you know, now that they've had some, some time to reflect on those, on, on the issues and the things that happened and they weren't, it wasn't so emotionally raw, uh, to be able to get those, those, those feelings and jot those down, um, for, for posterity was really, really cool. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Sure. Rachel. Yeah, I, I liked it. I think it helped if you, you know, had no idea what Tarsus four was, Mm -hmm. um, it really would have helped you (laughs) with the context. Um, and, uh, it also, you know, allows us to get, you know, some of the perspective of, sort of Kodos's followers after the fact and even if you know without having to go to their POVs in the mm-hmm. book this was a clever device yeah 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 and I, I particularly like the section that checked in with one of the guys who was actually in yes. a federation yeah. penal colony <laughs> yeah. uh you know first of all because I find the even though it hasn't been explored a lot, in fact, probably the the most potent look we've gotten at the Federation penal system was in the very first episode of Voyager right. when Janeway goes to visit Tom Paris. Uh, so, you know, the the Federation philosophy on rehabilitation is very enlightened, and uh, and it's kind of cool to see that this guy, you know, he was he had taken ownership over what he had done, and he had seen the error of his ways, and was able to speak frankly about uh, everything that had happened. He realized that he lost his freedom, but that doesn't mean that he can't at least try and better himself along the way. So yeah, I thought that that stuff was really cool. And by the end of the book, even being uh, as familiar with Tarsus IV as I am, I found a lot of value in, uh, because you, you would expect, like if there's anything resembling a bookstore in the 23rd century, and you walk into one in the the 2250s, let's say, uh, there would probably be a book like this about an event like that. And uh, it's probably one that I would read. So I thought that it was a really really cool way to sort of show what the implications were uh, on Federation society as far as the events on Tarsus IV are concerned. Uh, anything else jump out at you guys just about the way that the story was told that you might want to mention? Uh, just, just the fact that it, I think, I think it did a really good job of, of, uh, highlighting ancillary characters that were, uh, you know, traumatized by these events and really gave mm-hmm. you a sense of just how, you know, once martial law was instituted, just how much it disrupted life on on the colony, um, and I thought that was really, really well uh, illustrated within the book. Sure, Rachel. Yeah, I don't really have any extra. That's fine. That's fine. I'm just asking. Uh, what about uh, just emotional beats? Like, what jumps out at you guys about? Uh, emotional moments that maybe struck you because obviously it's trying to com- to portray a completely horrific event. Do you guys think it fulfills that promise with genuine emotional weight? Um, just to offer my own example, I think the thing that I got emotional about that I wasn't expecting to, first of all, I got unexpectedly emotional when the 4,000 were actually right. executed. I thought that the tragedy was really well emphasized in the moment. But um, the other big sort of emotional moment that I felt was actually after the event was winding down. You know, they, the Narbonne had actually left Tarsus IV and had left uh, the Enterprise with uh, 
you know, committing to recovery efforts. And Lorca was in the gym and he was just beating the living shit out of the, right. the punching bag and his knuckles were bleeding and he kept saying he was fine before, but you really got the idea that he was very much not fine. And uh, I thought that that did a really good job of sort of emphasizing the the cracks that something like this, having to endure something like this can create in someone's psyche. Uh, and of course, there was that great moment where Lorca reflected on the the fortune cookie that he had shared with Belena that said, hate cannot be conquered with hate. Uh, hate is only conquered by love thereabouts. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But uh, I was not expecting Gabriel Lorca with his sort of machismo attitude to provide a sense of sort of emotional and psychological fragility. And I was actually surprisingly affected by that. But Rachel, you have a choice of an emotional moment in the book that jumps out at you? Uh, I think Shannon Moulton being with her. uh, That really got me because that kind of bothers me. You know, kids having to go through traumatic stuff mm-hmm. um and you can't fully explain it to them because they don't completely understand it yeah and her stuffed animal and how she gave it to command to Giorgio. yeah yeah that was really nice it was and it um, got it got a great follow-up too yeah 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 it did cicero um I, you know I, i'm listening to your answers and 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 my answer makes me really think about what it says about me more than it's what it says about the book that's um, all right but but I, I i think uh one of the one of my major emotional takeaways was just how well uh the characters were human you know how how well they did a a a, a, a job at humanizing all of the characters um, you know, both you're talking about the fragility of, of Gabriel Lorca. Uh, we talk about the emotional resonance, um, the, and, and the emotional weight that, uh, Commander Zhou had, uh, throughout the story. But, uh, you really were able to feel the rage of characters like, uh, Jim Kirk and, and the all but catatonic Thomas Layton, um, you know, Tom Layton yeah. and, and, um, you know, dis- despite what everybody else says, I think that uh, the the way the story was written and and the way that uh, the, the characters were fleshed out, that there was some humanizing elements of Adrian Kodos uh, that you could that you could rationally or at least I could rationally glean um, from from listening and reading the book. Uh well, I, I let me let me uh, expand on my point a little bit because I think you're absolutely right in that it opens up the dimension to Kodos significantly. Like you understand by the time this book is over, particularly, but even in the moment after you learn more about him and how he interacts with people in the government and all of those things, you understand what led him to his conclusion. Right. right. As Spock once famously said. I do not agree. I understand. Right. right. Yeah. And and uh, and I think you do very much yeah. get that. Yeah. Uh, so um, I, I've really appreciated just it, 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 uh, how human 
all of those characters were, uh, you know, every, every last one of them. And, and then of course, uh, we do get, uh, we do get some, some follow up on a lot of those characters in the epilogue, uh, which I thought was, was super cool. I was kind of hoping and waiting, uh, as we got to see a young cadet or ensign, uh, molten, uh, that we mm-hmm. would also get to to see a young Jim Kirk, but uh, we alas we did not. We did not, but it does kind of make you wonder. Like uh, maybe maybe Giorgio wrote a letter to get him right, into the academy right. or something. You know, I mean, who knows? Who she she yes. saw promise. She saw Definitely. promise in him. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to one of my favorite things and the continuity of everything. All right. Because I've got a couple of little points. Nothing huge. Pedantic but, uh, continuity. Uh, although pedantic continuity. Well, not, not to make a theme song for that, Chris. <laughs> pedantic continuity. Or so, something, something dumb like that would be fun. Um, but – I mean, something that I appreciated and that I was genuinely surprised by was the appearance of the Enterprise Uh, because it makes sense. 2246, we are about a year removed from the launch of the Enterprise, at least as it was established in continuity. So we know that, you know, 11 years from now, when Discovery is in full swing and Michael Burnham is running the corridors with Sylvia Tilly. The Enterprise is regarded and the Constitution class itself is regarded as like the definitive ship to get an assignment on. So now take that to the novelty of the Constitution class right after they first launched. I mean, it had to have been just the most sheerly impressive uh, piece of technology, the most impressive starship to ever come along. You have the Constitution class USS Enterprise serving in a recovery capacity, best possible ship you can have. I mean, any Constitution class is fine, but we ascribe more value to the Enterprise because we know exactly right. what that ship is going to mean for the future. But um, I was pretty surprised at how well fleshed out, even in just some short appearances, that Captain Robert April was. Um, did April seem to connect – with his sole canonical appearance in the animated series and the counterclock incident to you guys, or did it feel like the book kind of went into a different direction with him? Cicero, what do you think? Well, I, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, we've got someone that was, well, so the funny thing is that he was, he was definitely older and seasoned in within the, within the book. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, the counterclock incident, he was an old man. So, you know, and that was, that was the thing that was weird to me that, so I guess, well, I guess we're, we're roughly 25 years after the events of, of Tarsus four at this point, by by that point, counterclock incident. So maybe he could have aged that much. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, that was the weird thing. I mean, it was cool. Again, it's, Anytime that you get to see, if you if you consider the Enterprise like a member of your family, uh, <laughs> as right. I do, uh, as you know, <laughs> as one is wont to do, uh, so that it's 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 definitely always cool when you get to see um, or you get reintroduced to one of their uh, former ancestors, and and so that you know, so that was. 
that was awesome. I mean, again, April doesn't have a lot to do in uh in drastic yeah. measures except be there mm-hmm. and and you know again call out call out to longtime fans of the series something else to kind of make them go get giddy um by you know by mentioning his name and the enterprise and his uh crazy beautifully uh british accent um but uh <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the the crazy continuity part uh, that I noticed was not from Drastic Measures, but from the con- Counterclock incident, where uh, Doctor April, his wife, mentions that uh, that that Captain April, at this point now Admiral April, was the very first mm-hmm. ca- or ambassador um, was the very first captain of Enterprise. Um, and, and we yes. know, of course, that, uh, Jonathan Archer was the very first captain of the enterprise. Oh, and she said that the, the uh, his enterprise was the first ship to, uh, that had a warp drive, um, first fleet ship that had a warp drive right. in it. So, and we know that captain Archer's ship was able to go, uh, did, did yeah and warp, uh warp and he ship. was definitely the captain of that ship now um you know we're we're talking about a show that came out in the 70s versus a show that came out in the early aughts but uh well the the way that that's typically broken out uh in the continuity is that they're actually technically correct by uh, ascribing april as the first captain of the enterprise but the federation starship enterprise that is correct. Uh, Captain Archer is a member of the Earth Starfleet that predates the Federation. So it's a it's a good way to sort of sidestep the fact that you know the show came along relatively late in the game for Star Trek that established much of the uh, early history in the 22nd century. But uh, I can see how that would have jumped out at you, especially as a fan of Enterprise. What about the fact that she talked about the warp stuff, Chris? Yes, that that how is how do you how do you reconcile a, that? I, I don't. That's an anachronism. That, 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 that does not work. It's 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 a bit paradoxical. You need, so, uh, you need Janeway to go back in time and fix it. <laughs> call the Admiral. Yeah. Uh, Rachel, did you get any impressions from Captain April? Uh, he sounded like my kind of guy because he wears <laughs> a cardigan <laughs> over his uniform. Whereas a person who is also, also always cold. Uh <laughs> I would probably be wearing a cardigan over my uniform. Very so. well. Well, the next thing I need to ask you about, because although not strictly canon, the tragedy on Tarsus Four does play a pretty big part in Kirk's childhood in author David Goodman's autobiography of James T. Kirk, which Rachel has read in its entirety. I haven't finished it, but she has. It's a point of shame that I haven't finished it. I'm sure I will soon, but... Uh, from your perspective, how do the depictions of Tarsus Four differ in drastic measures compared with that book? And do you have a preference? Um, so the characterization of Tarsus Four is different mm-hmm. in each book. So in the autobiography, Tarsus he describes Tarsus Four as like a technocratic colony, mm-hmm. uh, wherein you know, they keep, you know, detailed data and do all these projections and algorithms all the time to keep everything running. Whereas in, in this book, uh, it's more of, 
you know, they're sort of like back to the land kind of people, right. it seems like. Um, so, you know, in the autobiography, it's it's depicted as Kodos is more of a, a product of the culture of Tarsus for taken too far as opposed to, you know, like an individual actor. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also some like differences in, you know, just what happens. So in the autobiography, um, he, he and Tom Layton view the, uh, the killing from the roof, not from <laughs> like a tunnel. Mm-hmm. And they actually talk to Kodos and Kodos like checks his list and he's like, Oh no, <laughs> they're not on it. You can bring them to the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, those things, <laughs> those things I, uh, I can headcanon away as uh, James Kirk is a little <laughs> bit of a narcissist <laughs> and uh, maybe he thinks he talked to Kodos. <laughs> he didn't really. Well, or would write that in his autobiography, okay. even if it didn't quite happen like that, but he wants to tell a good story. Mm-hmm. Um but the you know those are just little things. But yeah, like the the biggest thing that for me like you know differentiates it as a um, you know like a a different person is telling this story is like the the Tarsus for itself is completely different. And there's of course no you know references to Lorca being on the planet right. or or Georgia or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, so, but you yeah, know, cause those things didn't exist at the time when that book was written. It came out so. in 15 or 16, something. It came out pretty recently. Yeah. Pretty recently, yeah. but definitely before discovery. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, mm-hmm. and, and David Goodman is really good about incorporating all of every reference into his, mm-hmm. his book. So if, if it had been there, he, he would have incorporated it. Yeah. Cause you're so. reading the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard. Yes. And oh, he also wrote that. Yeah. And he also has an autobiography for Spock coming out. Yeah. Which I'll be really interested to see if it mentions Michael at all. Because right. I kind of feel right. like now it would be a bad idea not to make reference to her in some capacity. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the canonical connection with the autobiography of James T. Kirk is far more dubious than this book. Uh, just because this book had direct involvement to a degree of members of the actual writer's room of Discovery. And those are the people that are steering the ship. And of course, the autobiography of James Kirk is just James Kirk's recollections, (laughs) which, you know, he's kind of (laughs) old. It was a long time ago. You know, he gets things wrong. I don't know if Kirk is a narcissist. Kirk is not William Shatner. Like, that's the. (laughs) I always make that determination to people that. I'm I'm more of a fan of Captain Kirk than I am of William Shatner because I don't think I'd get along with Shatner and I think I would get along with Kirk, but but you know I I do think Kirk might be the t- kind of guy who would embellish to tell yeah. a, tell a nice story in his autobiography. Well, some, but I mean he doesn't need to embellish a lot of things. <laughs> no, well, no, like if he was if he was telling this story, you know, post discovery, I think him meeting Georgia would be you right. know, some huge point of pride. That's right? true. Yes. Um, but you know, as it is, it's he does mention Robert mm-hmm. April, but that's mm-hmm. you know that's it. right. Yeah, yep. Falling in love with the Enterprise. Uh, well, another thing that I thought was worth asking, uh, since we're since near the end of the book in Giorgio's ready room aboard the Shenzhou, Shannon Moulton is there, and she mentions that in writing the Four Thousand, she tried to contact now Captain Lorca to get his perspective. 
and to try and interview him because he was, you know, right there on the ground. Uh, he apparently declined. And this section in the book took place just a few months before the events of the pilot. So Cicero. Yes. Do you think he declined because it was at a point where he legitimately felt like he didn't want to revisit those traumatic events or because it wasn't really Lorca that got the invitation to talk about it? Well, well, it was Lorca who got the invitation to, to talk about it, but which Lorca? was it uh and and you know and so the i mean the answer is obviously that it was mira Lorca who was who received that invitation and had no recollection of of these events so uh mm -hmm. i mean it was easy enough to just go ahead and deny the invitation as opposed to try and explain away or get himself involved in some, you know, some nasty web of lies that he couldn't really navigate himself out of. So, uh, yeah, right. I mean, it, it, that's that was easy enough for for him to do. Yeah, Rachel, you have a thought? Uh, I think it was Mira Lorca. He didn't want to blow his cover. Yeah. Yep. I think you're right, and I f I think uh, the people at Memory Alpha even speculate that Lorca had been displaced in like oh. 2255. And we know that that this uh, quasi epilogue was in 2256. So, yeah, that that wasn't the right guy. And uh, but but you know, it sounded it still sounded kind of right to Giorgio that he would have turned it down, even though she hadn't seen him in a really right. long time, which I thought was kind of a nice touch. But um, okay, so we've gone through the book. I have to ask you guys about the so-called post-credit scene to be found in drastic measures. Now, uh, for people who are listening to the show, spoiler alert. If you don't want to know anything about the tail end of this book and it's possible, <laughs> though admittedly remote implications for the future of the actual show, you should stop listening right here. At the end of this red alert klaxon, we will begin talking about a spoilerific aspect of this book's epilogue that could possibly have implications on the TV show itself. Okay, you've been warned. So, one of the things that make this book feel so connected to both Discovery and the Trek universe at large, as we said before, is because the authors of the book collaborate with members of the show's real writer's room. Ward did a great job of setting up the fortune inside one of the fortune cookies in a flashback between Lorca and the love of his life, Belena. And in this post-credit scene, there's a character. Dayton Ward did a great job of setting up the fortune inside a fortune cookie. And we know that Lorca's family has a connection to fortune cookies in the show. But he reads this fortune uh, to Belena in one of the quieter moments on Tarsus IV that he's sharing with her. And uh, in this epilogue, at the very, very tail end of the book, and in the print version, it's even the very last thing that you see. Like you have to go through... The, the title pages and the rights pages and all of these other things. And it is just there at the tail end. There's a man, you, it doesn't say explicitly who he is, who's in a prison cell. He doesn't seem to find any way out whatsoever. He describes his, his, uh, his jailers as having a common malevolence that sounds very familiar. And this guy in one quiet moment, he's never seen his jailer's faces. He's resolved 
to find a way out, but he doesn't know how he got where he is. He doesn't know what the place is, but he pulls out this little slip of paper and unrolls it. And it's the fortune that Lorca and Belena had spoken about. We're led to believe that this is alive and well in the mirror universe, the prime vision of Gabriel Lorca. Doesn't know where he is, doesn't know why he's there, but he's there. And unlike what uh, Admiral Cornwell seemed to think at the end of season one of the show, Gabriel Lorca's alive. Now, Cicero. Yes. You seem committed to this idea that Prime Lorca is never going to show up on future episodes of Star Trek Discovery. Even after reading that, you don't think it's a possibility. No, I, I, I don't. I, I, I mean, I think that what we got was a an a uh, an undated uh, snapshot of where Prime Lorca went to once he got to the Mirror Universe, that he was imprisoned, uh, presumably by uh, by some of uh, uh, Mirror Lorca's cohorts, uh, those people that were trying to overthrow the the Empire and the Emperor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know, once we get to the mirror, once we get to the mirror universe and discovery, he's nowhere to be found. Um, and uh, I just, I don't believe he's alive. I just don't believe he's alive. I think that Gabriel Lorca in both universes is D E D dead. <laughs> nice men in tights callback. I appreciate hey, that. No problem, Rachel. He's back, baby. <laughs> Coming back. All right. <laughs> Jason Isaacs, he's alive. He's well. He needs money, I assume, at some point. He will. Yeah, yeah, to live. So he'll be back. Well, and he liked it. Yeah, and he had a good time. Yeah, see, I, I just I don't think that it's cut and dry. I mean, why would he be – why would Ward – be allowed to include this to keep the possibility for a, a an appearance of this guy that we never met on the show why would he be allowed to put that into the book at all if there was not going to be a chance for prime lorca to show up at some point on the show so you could talk about it right here that that is that is okay, why okay but that is why i don't know i I, I think it's a little short-sighted not to see the possibility that this could present because it never even occurred to me before you mentioned it that his jailers could be Mirror Lorca's guys. I think that's actually a brilliant idea. Like maybe he couldn't hold up his cover, so they realized, "Uh-oh, this isn't our our right. our leader. We we better sequester him." And but you know we probably shouldn't kill him, so let's just keep him off to the side. I don't know. I think there's a hell of a story that can and be told and in maybe the that's why Dayton Ward was allowed to tell that to to provide that little bit of uh, the little bit of breadcrumbs right there is so that potentially he could write the story of the adventures of uh, Prime Lorca in the Mirror Universe. 
Wouldn't that be a great book? That, that would be a great book. I mean, obviously, I would love to see more of Jason Isaacs on the show, but I would take that. I think that that would be a story, whether it's in the show or whether it's in a book, I think that's a story worth telling. Uh, I mean, I really do feel in my heart of hearts that at some point, even if it's season seven, that Gabriel Lork is going to return. I just, in my head, and granted, you know, I'm writing my own <laughs> script, so who gives a shit? But still, in my head, I just see like, I see this moment where Michael is on the verge of being killed by someone. S- then a shot comes out of a blinding light and kills her assailant. She looks up and she sees that face that she knows she should be terrified of. And he look, she looks up at him and goes, Lorca. And he looks down at her and goes, uh, who the hell are you? And I would just love something like that to happen. I would just love it. And I mean, there's so there's so much potential for for a Lorca. But of course, you know, like I said, writing my own script, no one gives a shit. It's just in my head. I would like to see it. But yes, you're right, Cicero. Whether this happens in a book or whether it happens on the show, I would still just like it to happen. Right on. Right on. All right. So um, what didn't you guys like about the book? Because we've been pretty effusive in our praise for what we did like. Uh, Cicero, what comes to your mind? Like what, what maybe didn't meet your level of expectations with this book? It's, it's not even a, a thing that didn't, whether or not it, it met my level of expectation. I think, um, and, and this is not a negative at all is the, uh, cause we really didn't talk about the narration and the, the character work, um, by the, by the narrator, by the reader was, was, oh, fun, sure, was right. phenomenal, was really, really great. But the, it, what it did for me was, you know, the fact that he, he took the time to, to do all of these different accents, uh, was, was, was super great. But what it did for me was make me think back to this one problem that I fundamentally have, I've had with, with Star Trek over the years. Mm-hmm. We're, at, at the very least, 200 years into our future. Why? And, and uh, you know, the, the world is, is without war. We've, you know, we've got, uh, you know, we're essentially homogenized as a species. Mm-hmm. Why do people still have accents? <laughs> yeah. I actually thought about that while I was listening to. I was like, the, wouldn't they all have the same accent? Right. Like even if it was like, running through the universal translator. Well, not even yeah. not even that that if it was running through the why do no, humans like, yeah. why do humans have different accents? You know, maybe there like there be certain affectations that are that are slightly different from from other people. But there's you know, in in no one's world would uh would uh, Chekhov be saying nuclear vessels um, <laughs> because he grew up speaking English natively. There would be no reason for a regional dialect, uh, maybe a regional dialect, but not a whole nother language outside of English because we're homogenized as a species. Why would you make that more difficult by having a language that is something other than the primary language that everyone speaks? I think that that's a fair point. The only thing that uh, that comes to my mind, because this is something that I've thought about just over the course of my time as a Star Trek fan, is that the Federation as a society values inclusivity and multiculturalism almost right. above everything else. And they wouldn't... they. 
Like you have people, and I'm getting into political territory now, and I'm sorry for people who are listening who hate when politics bleeds into this, but it always kind of does. Like it's, it's Star Trek. Cogn- yeah, if you're if you're a cognizant Star Trek fan, then you know that politics bleeds into it at least on a, on on some level. But you know, there's people like those in the United States Congress who vote continuously to try and make English the official language of the United States. And uh, I remember uh, like in 2008, this came up and uh, it listed all of these people who so stupidly voted against English being the official language of the (laughs) United States. And, you know, as a knee jerk reaction, I can see that. But then if you look a little bit deeper, well, we probably valued it more even just a decade ago than we seem to now, but there's a great deal of symbolic power in the idea that we are a melting pot. You know, for for the longest time, the idea that the United States of America is a melting pot of different cultures all coming together means that, well, first of all, all of our signs and everything are in English anyway. So making English the official language would sort of discount the idea that everyone comes here and everyone is welcome to come here to make a better life for themselves. And I kind of just, maybe I just extrapolate that onto the Federation. Like if you speak another language natively, the language barrier is all but eliminated by technology. Uh, So you don't, there's no real necessity to sort of do away with other languages. You can pretty much speak however and whatever you want to. And that's, so I guess that's what comes to my mind, but you have something you wanted to add about that? Not really. I just think that in a super technologically advanced society, you would probably have some sort of homogenization of... Well, we're seeing that though. You're right. We're seeing that. Like, uh, I think, didn't you even mention to me a while ago that English in the UK and English in the United States is closer than it's ever been because of the more connected nature of the world today. Like the, the dialects would have evolved into entirely different and perhaps oh, indiscernible yeah. directions if that technology connectivity well, I definitely didn't, exist. didn't mention that to you because that's the first I've heard of it, but that <laughs> makes sense because like, I mean, languages evolve right. like species, right? right? And that yeah. you get separated and that's how you get new languages. Um, but yeah, because we're connected, all of English is sort of runs mm-hmm. together. Um, but you still have people with heavy accents, but it's like once – it's like if you move into a city and then connect with more, you know, a bunch of people with different sort of regional accents, you kind right. of like develop absorb. those affectations. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Weren't you telling me the other day, Cicero, that you were having trouble order? Was it ordering cool. coffee? Yeah. Yeah. It was right. Yeah. yeah I yeah. was having trouble ordering. What, how do you say it? Coffee? <laughs> because because <laughs> as as a New Yorker, you, you say coffee. And uh, yeah, it is. It's it's one of those things. But again, but as a person who now lives in the Midwest and lives, you know, specifically in Chicago, and and has for now a dozen years, I find myself yeah. uh, one of the things that that uh, the the uh, dialect affectations of the Midwest is that your short a's are are uh, more pronounced. So you say things like cash and and carry and, and, and that, that kind of stuff. But I'll, I'll find myself at times saying that, oh, I've got a podcast tonight. And, and that's, and, and, you know, and that's uh, obviously that was exaggerated a little, but I can hear it. 
Um, and you know, and despite mm-hmm. my 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 want to not do that, it is it is what has become natural to me as a result of of living in this place and speaking with the people that live here uh, so often and so frequently. Um, you know, and just kind of being immersed within within this place. When you look at the 23rd century Earth, where you can literally beam yourself across the world at, you know, within seconds and, uh, you know, presumably uh, even um, flight on on the planet is such that you can get from one point to the other point on on the planet within minutes that it doesn't you know it doesn't seem realistic to me that people would have a different well well maybe they have, like again maybe they have different dialects of english and you know maybe there are certain affectations that, as a result of the of the places that they live but the, but there is no way on 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 you know green earth that i would believe that people natively spoke a tongue other than English in the 23rd century in a, in a, in a mm-hmm. world that is as small as the one that occupies the Federation. And I think Firefly kind of ran with that, right? Because there were two, there were only two real right. surviving languages in Fireflies. Like right. Firefly was supposed to be something like 500 years in the future. And the only two languages right. that had survived apparently were English and Chinese which reflected the fact that America and China were two of the last superpowers. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I can definitely see that perspective. Absolutely. Rachel, something that you didn't like about this book. I think I just might have preferred to read it in book form as opposed to audiobook. Oh, why is that? Um, I do a little bit better with Hmm. fiction, reading it with my eyes. Hmm as opposed to listening with my ears. I've, this is just something that I've noticed, especially since I got a library card and I started <laughs> like <laughs> listening to more books and I, I find that fiction or- Well, f- first of all, you got a library card recently. <laughs> like you're not talking about since you were a kid. No, no, no. I got a, a library card a few months ago. And so I started being able to listen to audiobooks more frequently because they don't cost $30 a piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've just noticed that nonfiction, I really love listening to those audiobooks, but fiction, I, for some reason, I have a little bit of a harder time following along because I'll notice that I'll, I, especially because I very often listen while I'm doing other things that'll take my attention away momentarily. I see. Yeah. And, you know, with a nonfiction book, that's, you know, fine. Like you missed a sentence but you know what's happening mm-hmm. um but uh every word counts in fiction yeah and, and i think it's also it's more than that it's that i have a for some reason an easier time visualizing things when i'm reading it with my eyes hmm. um and i don't know why that is okay but, um, but that was just my i was i was losing the thread a lot when i was reading that or listening to this mm-hmm. um and it was because i was doing other things and it, i was like really stressed out while i was listening to parts of it and so i was just like completely like going off on my own tangents and stressed out because of something in life or because of the book because of something in life okay and the book is not relaxing <laughs> so like it's, it was not helping <laughs> so the next discovery tie-in novel you will probably read i would like to read it or i will have to reserve my listening to you know like laying 
in bed, awake, not before bed, because I'll fall asleep. But, um, and then uh, just, uh, you know, really focus on it. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. But nothing about the book that you maybe didn't necessarily like. Uh, No, I don't really remember, you know, finding, I did, I did find myself thinking as well, like, why do these people have accents? Like, (laughs) (laughs) these countries don't exist. Like, I I don't know. But. All right. Fair enough. Well, I'll be speaking an accent that is like nothing like any of our accents because it'd be like a combination of all like Esperanto is the only language that survives. Right. A language no one speaks currently now. Uh, Well, as for me, I think the only thing that I maybe didn't like, and that's putting it strongly because I pretty much loved this book. Uh, Sometimes as much as I love the world building and as much as I love the contextualization of what it's like to feel uh, an experience or to see an experience, sometimes it got a little too descriptive. Like I didn't necessarily need to know the shape of the chair that a character was sitting on sometimes and stuff like that. That was more just like an efficiency thing. Uh, that that took up some valuable story real estate. But uh, overall, I don't really have any complaints about this book. It pretty much checked all of the boxes that I look for in an expanded universe Star Trek story. Uh, and it didn't overuse characters that we already know, knew really well. And it provided greater context, first of all, to a vision of a character we never met on the show. I found a significant amount of value in that. And it's just great to see more of Giorgio. So pretty much great all around. I don't really have any, any uh, negative things to say about Star Trek Discovery Drastic Measures. I found it to be uh, a very enjoyable jaunt into the Star Trek universe from a, from a perspective that was partially familiar with a new light shed on it because of, uh, of, of Star Trek Discovery specifically. Uh, however, we're not done with Star Trek Discovery tie-in novels yet because on June 5th, the next one written by veteran Trek author James Swallow, who has written no less than 14 other Star Trek novels across almost every era, including some of Captain Riker's adventures aboard the USS Titan. Uh, the next Star Trek no- Discovery tie-in novel is called Fear Itself, and it's out this coming June. And the description is as follows. Lieutenant Saru is a Kelpian, a member of a prey species born on a world overrun by monstrous predators and a being who very intimately understands the nature of fear. Challenged on all sides, he's determined to surpass his origins and succeed as a Starfleet officer aboard the USS Shenzhou. But when Saru breaks protocol in order to prove himself to his crewmates, What begins as a vital rescue mission to save a vessel in distress soon escalates out of control. Forced into into a command role he may not be ready for, Saru is caught between his duty and the conflicting agendas of two antagonistic alien races. To survive, he will need to seek a path of peace against all odds and risk compromising the very ideals he sworn to uphold. So how do you guys feel about this one on concept? Is this a story you're excited for? Any wishes for things you hope it explores about our favorite Kelpian? Uh, Cicero, as a big Saru fan, does, does this excite you? I'm here for it, man. I am I, you know, I'm 100% Team Saru, man. Uh, <laughs> you know, give me some more Saru. 
give it to me all the time. Uh, yeah, let's let's get it. All right. All right. Rachel? Yeah, I'm excited. I think Saru has the potential for having a really interesting inner life, mm-hmm. and I'd like to hear more about it. Yeah, we got a taste of it in uh, Desperate Hours, yeah. but it didn't go as far as an entire book devoted to him could. Uh, I'll be interested to see it as well. A lot of it because Saru came to his own, it seems, the most dramatically over the course of the first season of the show. Like, you know, he's a very different guy in the Vulcan Hello than he is compared with the yes. season finale. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see maybe one of his first crisis situations unfold. Uh, so that it, we'll definitely be taking a look at that. Uh, hopefully this coming summer, obviously, you know, drastic measures came out back in February. It took us a couple of months to get to it, but uh, we'll, we'll definitely be taking a look at fear itself when it's available and we will review it for you when we get the opportunity to. So thank you very much. That's going to do it for episode 20 of discovery debrief. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please like, and follow us on our social media channels. And if you would be so kind, we'd also appreciate it. If you wrote a review for the show on iTunes or Facebook, it only takes a minute and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted. If you have any questions, you can follow the show on Twitter at DSC debrief, where you can also find all of our individual Twitter handles and feel free to send us questions through Twitter, our Facebook like page, or by emailing us directly at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes. And really, guys, be sure to keep your eyes on our social media channels for future plans. And hopefully, we'll have quite a surprise for you in our next episode, which we will be bringing to you soon. As always, though, until then, go boldly, my friends. Mm-hmm.